0: Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. First, I'd like to uh, just welcome uh, the three regions that are joining us tonight. Uh, That's uh, Harlem Ministry, uh, the Brooklyn Ministry, and of course, the Staten Island Ministry. Um, It's been an amazing uh, several weeks of of learning a a book that, uh, quite frankly, I I avoided uh, uh, trying to learn about because it seems so complicated uh, at the time. But uh, uh, thank you, uh, Gordon, for, uh, for making it uh, easy, I would say, or, or even just uh, manageable uh, for, be, for me to be able to get my mind around it, for us to be able to learn from that. So uh, it's been amazing uh, having you here and, uh, and looking forward to uh, the last lesson um, in, this, in this series. Um, so thank, once again, uh, we're going to get started. And to get us started, it's going to be Stephen Aguayo is going to get us started with the opening prayer. So go ahead, Steve.
1: Uh, let's pray, guys. Uh, God in heaven, thank you so much for your love. God, thank you for having us in your family. Uh, God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for giving us access to uh, to your word through scripture. God, I pray that we never take for granted um, the just how amazing it is that we, that we can we can dive deep into the scriptures and and learn about um, your will for our lives, uh, God. Right now, I pray that you can just be with everyone on this call, everyone that's, that's and everyone that's going to be watching this uh, this recording later on as well. I pray that as we uh, d- uh, dig back right back into the Book of Revelation, I pray that you can um, use this as as a t- time to reveal um, what what you what you want us to do, God, like what, how you want us to think, what you want us to say, how you want us to behave. I pray that the outcome of our our study here um, can be a deeper appreciation of you and the Bible, as well as as a, uh, a just a, a, a lived out um, a expression of, of your will in our lives, God. Thank you so much for Gort, for for uh, for for Gordon Ferguson on, on on the call with us here tonight. Thank you for his wisdom and his uh, uh, insight, God. And I pray that we can we can all uh, uh, just learn and be and be and be students of. Of, of you and your word. And I pray that, that, that again, that, that we can all leave here with a desire to be more like your son. And, and, and I pray that that the, the book of Revelation can can help guide us in that direction. God, thank you so much for being the answers. Thank you for being the instruction, the direction, the motivation, everything that we need to live the lives you call us to live. God, uh, I, I love you. And I pray that we can have a, a great time together here on this call. Praising in Jesus
0: name.
2: Amen. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the glory of the Lord. Let the glory of the Lord. Good evening, brothers and sisters, and uh, welcome back to our midweek service at the New York City Church of Christ. Uh, It gives me great honor again tonight to be able to introduce to us our guest speaker, Gordon Ferguson. Uh, Gordon is a great Bible teacher, an evangelist, an elder. He's served in all those three roles in our fellowship of churches over the years. And the last four weeks has been tremendous. Uh, Gordon has broken down the book of Revelation for us. And tonight, uh, I'm sad to announce that uh, he's going to wrap things up by looking at chapters 18 to 22. Gordon, on behalf of all the disciples in Brooklyn, from Harlem, and from Staten Island, I want to say thank you to you personally. Uh, You've taken the time out of your schedule the last five weeks uh, just to come and teach us and feed us. And we're very, very grateful. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Gordon, for making available your notes and your slides. Uh, They've been tremendous. Um, Again, um, I want to remind us that uh, Gordon has a lot of books out there, 17 of them in total, and uh, you can can pick them up from ipibooks.com. I've read several of them. Uh, My favorite probably is Powerful Preaching Made Practical. Uh, That book changed the way I I preached God's word uh, many, many years ago. When he, when he taught it first and then wrote it. Uh, so uh, again, Gordon, thank you so much, Father, for all, excuse me, I say Father, Gordon, for what you've done for us over the last several weeks. Brothers and sisters, I know we're all muted, but uh, one final time, can we put our hands together and give our brother Gordon Ferguson a warm New York City welcome uh, again tonight. Gordon, you remain forever my HBIC, you're my head bishop in charge, And so without any further ado, brothers and sisters, one more time, our brother Gordon Ferguson from Dallas, Texas.
3: Amen. Thank you, Richard. It is great to be back with you again. Uh, I know that we've got three regions of our uh, church group in the New York area that are with us in these uh, five lessons. I know also that probably a number of you have been invited by someone to tune in and to watch. And I want to uh, wish you a special welcome and thank you for tuning in. I would also encourage you, uh, whoever in, uh, encouraged you to watch this, I encourage you to uh, ask them more about our group and to ask more about just studying the Bible itself. We do a lot of Bible study with people on an individual basis, <laughs> sit down in a living room, at a coffee shop, wherever, and open the Bible up together and study. And I know for me, when I first started studying the Bible, even though I'd gone to church all of my life, mother made sure of that, uh, even though I'd gone to church, when I started actually getting into the Bible more in depth, I was amazed at how much I had missed. There's just so much in there. Uh, I wrote a book a couple of years back, a real short book entitled, God, Are We Good? And then, can I know for sure was the subtitle? And those are good questions. All of us are going to uh, meet God. Some of us will be fortunate like me and get old before you do it. Uh, Others may not live as long as I have. I'm 80 years old now, so God has let me live a long life, but it's about done. And uh, it won't be that long before I meet him. And I want to make sure that I'm prepared. And the only way I know that I can be prepared is to see what his will for me is as stated in the Bible. So I encourage you uh, to do some in-depth study if you have not. And there are plenty of people uh, in these uh, groups here that are a part of the New York City Church that would be happy to sit down with you and study and help. Uh, I would say this as we kick off tonight. uh, Picture, and this is about the background of Revelation. We have taken the position that it is written in anticipation of an ever-increasing, during the first several centuries, an ever-increasing persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. And so in chapter 12, Satan is talked about, and then in chapter 13, he has two allies, two beasts, uh, one land beast, one sea beast, one of them Uh, stood for political wrong. That was the power that led to the persecution of Christians. The land beasts, or later called the false prophet, was uh, the religious side of that that enforced emperor worship. And of course, Christians could not say Caesar is Lord, and that got them into all kinds of trouble and many times caused them their lives And then in chapter 17 that we got to last week, we're introduced to another aspect of the Roman Empire, and that is the great prostitute or the worldly side of Rome and the materialistic side. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But in order to get into the setting of it and what it would have been like in those early centuries, picture yourself going to church on a Sunday night. And you're having to hide out because you're being persecuted. So you're meeting in the catacombs or in some place that you hope uh, will not be discovered by the authorities. And so you're meeting together and in the fellowship time before church starts. Of course, they were at night because uh, Sunday was not an off day for them. Uh, They worked on Sundays and then they could get together afterwards at night. But picture going to one of those services during the fellowship time. And you see a little group of women to one side, and they are crying. And one of them is especially crying. She is weeping aloud. And then you go and ask what is going on, and you find out that her husband was arrested and persecuted and ultimately killed uh, two months prior to that. And just that afternoon, her grown son, her only son had been arrested, and she knew what was likely to take place. That was going on all over the Roman Empire uh, in time, and it was heating up toward the end of the first century, and that's what Revelation was written to prepare people for. Uh, But uh, when you have that kind of thing going on, it would be odd, would it not? to write a book that mostly addressed events that were going to happen in the 21st century or 22nd or whenever. Uh, This was a book, like all the other New Testament books, written for a specific purpose to a specific audience, and uh, they were the main recipients and who they needed it at the time. But we're all human. We all have some of the same problems we face, and so Like any other book, be it First Corinthians or Romans or whatever, there are applications to all generations because we are all human. But the primary focus of Revelation, I am convinced, uh, was on that first century and beyond persecution by the Roman Empire. Now, let me see if I can share our screen. And... Get started on these chapters 18 to 22. Okay, so lesson five in chapter 18 describes the downfall of the worldly side of Rome. I mean, Rome was going to fall, but this one describes the prostitute or the worldly materialistic side. And I put some of the verses in there just to show you uh, how the earth would be impacted or the world, the non Christians. It says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stone, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble. And he goes on to describe all of that, including horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. And they are mourning this and saying, all of your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. And so all the merchants are mourning and crying out over the great city that has fallen. And so very graphically, uh, all of those that uh, profited off of Rome's materialism are weeping. We would be doing the same in this country, right? If all of a sudden, everything crashed, and our nation crashed, and we had no money and no way to buy things and whatever else, and uh, at some point, that I think will have to happen. Uh, All nations eventually fall, so anyway, a sobering thought, right, and so in chapter 18, with the fall of Babylon is what the prophet is, uh, the prophetess is called, or the prostitute, Uh, I just list, and you can see this on the outlines that are available, you can look at all the figures because very similar figures are used for nations that are about to be punished by God like Rome was. And so you have Babylon, you have Nineveh, you have Tyre, and you have some of the prophecies aimed at them back in their day. Now, even though the same symbols are used in Revelation, it doesn't mean they're a fulfillment of Ezekiel or Zephaniah or Jeremiah. It's just that he borrows the symbols that were consistently used to describe the downfall of a nation, no matter what that nation happened to be. And so we've got some figures here that you can look up later and see how familiar this symbolism would have been, especially to the Jews in the first century and to the Gentiles in the church as they learned and were taught. Uh, The Gentiles needed to be taught because they didn't have the Old Testament prophecies, but they were taught all of these things by the Jewish Christians because they understood the symbols historically uh, and understood especially in the last couple of centuries before Christ uh, when a lot of apocalyptic type language and literature was actually written during a time of persecution. It's interesting that in the last part of the chapter, it says that the blood of those who followed Jesus was crying out, and that's a common uh, way to describe it. In Genesis 4.10, Abel's blood cried out to God after his brother killed him. And then Jesus in Matthew 23 said all the blood of the righteous that were slain all the way back up until the present was going to be uh, taken out on that generation, uh, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by Titus and the Roman armies. And now he is saying some a little later, not all that long later, that the blood in persecuting Rome had cried out to God. And you recall back in chapter 6, the sixth seal described uh, those who had been martyred, and they are crying out under the altar of sacrifice. They had been sacrificed, not by God, but by Rome. They were crying out that God avenged their blood and uh, raised their cause, which God ultimately has done and always will. At the end of chapter 19, you get the... uh, or in chapter 19, you get the beast and the false prophet destroyed. We were introduced to them back in chapter 13, but they are destroyed in chapter 19. We've already got the prostitute judged and destroyed, and now the other allies of Satan, the beast and the false prophet, are destroyed. Uh, That begins in chapter 19 with what I just call the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, hallelujah means praise God. That's, that's a good word. It's found only here, five times here, or four times uh, in the whole New Testament. And I have been around certain groups that I you would have thought Hallelujah was on every other page of the New Testament because they were big on the word, which I don't mind the word. I mean, it's in Revelation, but it was at that point when they realized that God Uh, in fact, was going to judge the persecuting empire, there was a praise offered to God in the form of this word, hallelujah. Uh, Then he talks about in this chapter, and again in chapter 21, about the church or God's people as a bride adorned for her husband. And that's a very interesting analogy, the marriage analogy. God, all the way through the Old Testament, talks about being married uh, to Israel. He says, I am married to you. And he says, you have been unfaithful to me, although I was a husband to you. Many passages. And so when you look at the New Testament, uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven two that he was jealous over them with a godly jealousy, for he promised them uh, to Christ as a pure virgin, and so in one sense, we are engaged to Christ in the way that Paul described there, and then Romans 7, 4 talks about uh, the fact that we are married to God, and Ephesians 5 describes the church as the bride of Christ, so there's a sense in which we're engaged, there's another sense in which there is a union, a marriage union, but the celebration, the marriage supper is still in the future, and that is announced in chapter 19 and described a little more in chapter 21 when the New Jerusalem, uh, as the bride of Christ, comes down as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. I remember years ago when I had just started training to preach. I was in a school, and there was a Older man that was the director of the school, and one night he preached a sermon entitled "Married to God." I had never thought of that concept. I didn't know the Bible much at that time. I had just started my training, but that uh, that sermon about took my breath away. I thought it was absolutely stunning and beautiful. The idea of being married to God, and now at the 58-year mark of our marriage. And knowing how precious marriage is to my wife, uh, then I can think about being married to God, being a part of the bride of Christ. And there's so many lessons in that. Sometimes when I teach the book of Romans, it fits in very well with uh, Romans 7. But sometimes when I teach the book of Romans, like in a workshop on a Saturday, on Sunday, I will always preach that sermon married to God. Uh, To me, it's kind of a showstopper sermon. I love that sermon. I've preached it many times. I stole it straight from my older friend back in the day, uh, but I have preached that lesson many times, and it's a beautiful concept, uh, especially if you have a good marriage. Someone said that a good marriage is probably the closest thing on earth to heaven, and a bad marriage is probably the closest thing on earth to hell, (laughs) I think there's probably some truth to that one. I had one elder friend years ago. He said uh, he had many little sayings that were always uh, really cool, I thought. Uh, His name was George Havens, and we called him Georgisms. But one of his Georgisms that I put in a book, probably my book, Fairy Tales Do Come True, about our marriage. Anyway, he says that the worst year of a good marriage is the first one. And the worst year of a bad marriage is the last one. That one also resonated and made, made sense. Now, interestingly, two times in Revelation, the writer, John the Apostle, is so overwhelmed that he bows down to worship the angel. I mean, the angel, pretty magnificent angel. Make sure of that. And you would understand why he would do that but in both cases, the angel says, no, you don't worship me. And Jesus made plain back in Matthew 4 when Satan was tempting him and said, if you'll worship me, then I'll give you this. And Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy, he said, you shall worship only the Lord your God. In fact, all three temptations that Jesus had, he quoted from Deuteronomy. That's another lesson for another time. But it does tell you something about Deuteronomy that it's important. Uh, So only God can be worshipped. Men cannot be worshipped. Humans cannot be worshipped. In Acts 10, Cornelius tried to worship uh, Peter. He said, no, no, stand up. I'm just a man like you. Then in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, after doing a miracle, had people ready to sacrifice to them in Lystra, and, and Paul said, no, no, get up. Don't do that. Uh, We're just men like you, so humans cannot be worshipped, and then in Revelation, as we just said, twice uh, angels refused to be worshipped by John, but when you look at Jesus, he was worshipped by humans, and here are a number of the passages that say that. He was worshipped in the flesh uh, when he was in his earthly ministry. He was worshipped readily by humans, which he accepted, And it says in Hebrews 6 and Revelation 5, he was worshiped by angels. So when you put all that together, Jesus has to be deity and not a created being. And there are those that teach that Jesus was a created being. And uh, the Bible shows that's not true in many ways. But one way is to take this... uh, syllogism, I guess we'd call it, in logic, and I think it drives the point home well. In the middle part of uh, chapter 19, Jesus is is presented as the rider on the white horse, and it says he has a name that no one can understand except himself, because how could you understand his personality and the fact that he is deity? How could you understand that as a human? We'll never fully understand it. But on the other side of this life, we'll understand a whole lot more than we understand now. But anyway, he is ready to do battle against the persecutors. And that's how he's presented. And then at the end of the chapter, it says the sea beast and the false prophet, who is called the land beast in chapter 13, they are thrown into the lake uh, of fire and brimstone. Now, in chapters 20 to 22, we get into the end part of the book, and chapter 20 has some things that point to the end uh, of time, not just the end of Rome as a persecutor, but this chapter has been used in so many ways. to teach a thousand-year reign on earth and a temple rebuilt and animals offered and uh, many, many variations of what I call pre-millennialism. It's a type of prophecy that I do not believe Revelation is about at all. Uh, But chapter 20 does have some very interesting stuff that does run all the way up to the end time before heaven begins. In fact, it ushers it in. So, since this has been such a controversial passage, I do want to read some of it before I start explaining it. He says, I saw an angel coming out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, I'll tell you what I think this means in a moment here, but we'll read a little more. Uh, I can't really see the top of that, but it it says uh, that he saw... uh, the people on thrones who had been given authority to judge. And these are the same ones that we met in the sixth seal of chapter six. They were the ones that had been martyred and were under the altar, crying out that their cause be avenged. And so he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God they had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That all goes back to chapter 13. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And then in a parenthetical statement, he says the rest of the dead, that is the non-Christians, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So at some point, we're going to see that the cause of, of Jesus is going to escape or get out of that period of persecution and come to life and reign with Christ a thousand years, which I don't think is literal. But the persecutors are the evil ones from then until uh, much later, that their, their cause did not get resurrected, whereas the cause of the righteous got resurrected as the persecution came to an end. He says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. And that second death will be described in chapter 21. That's the final casting of the wicked into hell to join uh, Satan and the beast and the false prophet and everyone else who is in hell. He says the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, Then, after that, it says Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations. Once again, we could add in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog, and together them for battle. In number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, which will be introduced as the new Jerusalem or the bride in chapter 21. He says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so what does that mean? Satan was bound for a thousand years. Now, he was bound in some way. He was not totally bound because Peter said he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But he was limited in some way and to some degree, although not totally incapacitated. One time I was on a walk. And uh, all of a sudden I looked out and a huge Doberman was charging me and uh, I could tell he wanted me for dinner or lunch or whatever time of day it was. That was scary. I mean, he came out of nowhere and was running straight at me. And so I thought, wow, that this is not good. And all of a sudden he hit the end of a chain and that was it. He hit the end of a chain about 20 feet from where I was, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm not afraid of you, Doc. You are chained. You are bound. He wasn't totally bound, but he had his limits as to how far he could go. He was chained to that extent, and it's the same here, as we'll see. thousand years, we've said that's not any more literal than 144,000 or three and a half or 42 months or... Uh, time, times and a half a time, there are many symbols, six. We talked about all of those in the first lesson. If you missed it, you can go back and get them. But the thousand years is just a long period of time. And I gave you several passages that show how that's used. What we would say is, I would never do that in a million years, right? It's a hyperbole, an overstatement to make a point. But the thousand years, was used in the Bible to signify a long period of time. And so Satan is bound during that long period of time. It says that he should deceive the nations no more and would have to say, since he still deceives people, uh, individually for sure, since he deceives people, then we'd have to say that he is limited in how much he can do that And he could not do it in the same way that he had uh, during this time of persecution. Maybe he's talking about a worldwide persecution of Christians. That hasn't happened since then, by the way. And I think that's what he's referring to. Some think it could be that the world would not be deceived into emperor worship or a one-world ruler situation, Uh, some like that one. But when you read about what happens in that part of Revelation 20 that we read, it talks about they coming after the Christians. It doesn't identify an individual leading that besides Satan. Uh, he does mention Gog and Magog, and that uh, term comes from, or those terms come from chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel. And, and Magog was a land, in chapter uh, 39 looks like people, a people in a land, and then God in chapter 38 was the prince uh, of Magog, and so it's just a way of depicting the enemies of God that would gather to uh, do battle against God's people and surround them, and then Jesus comes, intervenes in that, etc. Uh, so reigning with Christ a thousand years, the souls of the beheaded That's a symbolic way of showing the victory of their cause. They had been persecuted. Uh, They were the souls under the altar in chapter 6. Now they're elevated, and they are on thrones with Christ because the cause has now been vindicated, and uh, the worldwide persecution is done, and Rome has been judged by God. When he says the rest of the dead live not, That means the cause of the non-Christian world, particularly the persecutors, did not become alive, whereas those mentioned in verse 4 had come alive. Their cause had come alive. So he is talking here about the resurrection of a cause. Uh, That's not something new, by the way. You remember the, uh, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? And you remember the song that goes with that. You know, each part of the body is joined to another. My wife and I went to a a surgeon about her back. We talked about thinking that's what is affecting her legs. She has a lot of pain in her legs from a pinched nerve due to degenerative discs in her back, her lower back. But she has pinched nerves that affect her legs, but now she started having knee problems. So I asked him, uh, as I went in with my wife, I wanted to know all about this. As I went in with my wife, I asked him, Well, why about the knee? Is that connected to the back? He said, It could be. And then he started singing that song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, and bones, and bones, and dry bones. And he talks about the connection of all of that. That comes out of Ezekiel. 37. And so Ezekiel is shown the valley of dry bones, and he says, can these live? And the prophet said, gee, I I don't know. And so God then had the flesh and the skin and all the parts of the body come back together and had them stand. And he explains that that was the resurrection of the cause. They had been in captivity for a long time and their cause was going to be resurrected, and they would be able to go back into the land. You find something similar in Isaiah chapter 26. In fact, in Ezekiel 37, he goes on down in the same chapter, and talks about two sticks, and told Ezekiel what to write on them. One of them stood for the southern kingdom, one of them stood for the northern kingdom. They had been separated a long time, And then the northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity, and uh, a number of years later, the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity. So they were taken into captivity at two different times, but uh, he told Ezekiel to write the names of uh, the uh, northern and southern kingdom on a stick. And then he says, join them together because they will be joined together. Their cause will be joined together. They will go back into the land and be united again, which did occur. And of course, the ultimate answer to that was united under Christ. And he goes to that point and talks about the king then that would reign over them back in the land. So the idea in scripture... Uh, showing in a symbolic way the resurrection of a cause is something you find in the Old Testament as well as here in Revelation. And so that's what I believe he's talking about. When the thousand years are finished, uh, even though Satan is, is limited during that thousand years, he can't do what he did during the Roman Empire days. There can't be a worldwide persecution, nor has there been something about His limitation would be removed for a little time compared to the thousand years, a little time, and then Jesus is going to come and end it all. He's going to cast uh, the devil into hell to join the beast and the false prophet, which we have read. There is what we call the great white throne judgment where the book of life is open, and we are judged out of that book or the things that we have done on this earth during our lifetime, he uh, checks out our names in that book. And he talks about names written in the book before the creation of the world back in chapter 13. Interesting there, God always sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So you got the great white throne judgment, heaven and earth fled away, the physical universe replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. And then he says that death in Hades is cast into the lake of fire. The word Hades simply means uh, the place that we go to when we die. I'm going to tell you about my website in a moment. But on my website, I have an article called What Happens When We Die. And I explain the different parts of the afterlife. Uh, prior to the Judgment Day and the heaven that I think is described in uh, Revelation 21 and 2. But he says, death and Hades cast into the lake of fire. Why, Why would that be done? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that death was the last enemy to be destroyed. And so death, which was brought on originally in the Garden of Eden by sin, death will be ended. That'll be a good thing. There will never be an end to those that end up with God in heaven. There will never be an end. I don't think about that too long. I get dizzy because we are time-bound creatures. Things have a beginning and an end. I was praying this morning way before daylight came, And I watched it get daylight out my window. And uh, I thanked God for the beginning of a new day. The sun is setting right now, or maybe already has. I've got the blinds drawn, But, uh, you know, we have the beginning and the end of a day. But to God, Peter said, a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. Time doesn't mean anything to God, but it means everything to us. Uh, We are time-bound creatures." And we judge things based on time. And so when I think about never ending, it honestly can make me dizzy, literally, physically. Uh, But we'll be with God forever. And death in Hades, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So then in chapter 21, heaven begins. And so fellowship with God New Jerusalem comes out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. God wipes away all of our tears. All of the things that broke our hearts in this life will never occur again. There will never be a sad moment. In fact, Peter describes uh, a joy unending. Uh, And you think about what it's going to be like. You know that song by Mercy Me. Uh, about what it will be like will we be just in shock looking at God or will we dance or whatever and so that's uh, supposedly the most popular uh, spiritual song ever written I saw the movie based on it but at any rate uh, when we are with God it's just going to be an amazing time and the joy never fades in this life the joy fades right You buy a new car, you're all pumped up until the first scratch or the first payment comes. Uh, Almost anything in life can lose that newness. That's why you have to really work and invest in a marriage. That's why in our 58th year of marriage, or now going into our 59th, I'm reading a chapter a day out loud to my wife, not every day, but Uh, I read a chapter out loud and then we talk about it and reminisce and go back. But uh, my wife suggested that we've read many marriage books together because we know that it takes a lot of work to keep things growing. And heaven is not going to take a lot of work. It's just going to be there. It'll be joy unfading, as Peter put it. So, You get introduced to it that way. But he does go and give one final warning about what happens to the wicked to make sure that no one aimed for heaven uh, starts going back in the wrong direction, to make sure that those that are going in the wrong direction will reconsider and figure out God's will and do it and follow the Lamb. So he says the wicked are excluded And he names off the various sins. I think he starts with uh, unbelief, if I recall. And the unbelievers are the one that said Caesar is Lord. That saved their lives, but not forever. It saved their lives from the persecution when they said Caesar is Lord, but they still died and met God, as we all will. Uh, he, He says this is the second death, and death is simply, in the Bible, separation. When a person dies, that means that their spirit, the part made in the image of God, leaves their body. And so the body without the spirit is dead. I was reading through the New Testament. I'm doing it once a month. So I was reading in Acts the other day about Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. But uh, this uh, widow woman who was highly regarded in the early church had died. And she made clothes for everyone. She was just a a great woman. And she made clothes for everyone. And and, uh, as they explained it, they said, while she was with us, here's what she did. Well, her body was right there. They had prepared her for burial. Her body is there, but she wasn't there. Because when we leave, our spirit leaves our body. All of that is in that article on my website, What Happens When We Die. But the ultimate second death is when uh, there is a separation into eternity without God. And that is a scary, scary thought. Okay, so finally here, we get uh, a lot of uh, things from God. Provisions, the tree of life, lost in Eden, regained in heaven. All of these are symbolic. And he describes heaven in a way that, goodness, uh, I have no idea what some of that could possibly mean in a literal sense, because it isn't literal. He's just describing in human terms what would uh, be the most amazing thing we could imagine. And whatever we could imagine, it's fantastic and great and awe inspiring and breathtaking. In spite of everything we could imagine, it would be only a little pinch of what the real afterlife with God is going to be like. And so you get a final invitation here, the spirit and the bride, the spirit beckons us through his words, the Bible, the bride, the church here has the responsibility to teach the lost also. And so God is reminding us to the very end that people need to be taught the gospel of Christ. They need to be taught God's word so that they know how to be ready to meet him and spend eternity with him. So that's a cool little thing right toward the end. A final warning. He says, don't add to, don't take away from these words that are written in this book of prophecy, verses 18 to 19. Uh, The primary application is to the book of Revelation, but it's true of all inspired words. We cannot change God's word to fit us. Uh, many people do. They have different views. Well, I know it says that, but we got our butts in there in the wrong place, B-U-T-S. Uh, that's uh, scary stuff there to explain away the Bible. When I read it, I believe it. I take it seriously. I saw a bumper sticker one time that was popular, and it says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And I said, oh, no, no, that's one line too long. You don't need that middle part. God said it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. Uh, We got to take the word seriously. That's why I'm still teaching the Bible. That's why I spend much of my days. I hadn't been on the staff of a church for a long time. But that doesn't change what I'm here for. That That doesn't change my purpose. I'm not going to be out on a golf course every day. I'm not going to be reading the latest novel every day. I am going to be in the Bible. I'm going to try to get other people in the Bible. I'm going to teach the Bible to anyone that I can. And I talk to the people that come uh, or that I get to see. I share with people all the time and try to get them to study the Bible with me. I've given a number of those books, Uh, entitled God Are We Good. It's a small book. I've given that to many people. They come to my house to give me a new internet. They get talked to. They get a, a book if they promise me to read it. The last one I gave away, they, I was here to fix my internet that had broken one of those nights that we were together just prior to that. And uh, I said, now I'll give you the book. I'd already talked to him about the importance of studying the Bible and said, you and I can study together, et cetera. But I said, I'll give you this book if you promise me to read it. I said, I will not give it to you if you're not going to read it. So be a straight shooter here. And he said, no, he would read it. So I I, I gave him a little inscription to go along with it. So uh, just the importance of the Bible. I love the Bible. Uh, I study it all the time. I read it all the time. Uh, Nothing's changed about my life as I've gotten older. My wife and I have a goal every day to do something spiritual that makes an impact on somebody. That is our goal for every day that we live. And age uh, does not change that because we belong to God. We're going to meet God. We're getting closer to it than ever. There's a guy in in an old folks home, we call it. Pretty old guy. He's reading the Bible all day, most every day. Finally, someone walked in and said, man, you are reading the Bible all the time. What in the world is going on? And he looked up with a wry smile, and he says, I'm cramming for the final." That's a good answer. John 12, 48 says that we'll be judged by the words that Jesus has spoken. So you want to know how Judgment Day will go? Read the Bible, and you'll know. Uh, Then he gives us some last things here, Uh, the last blessing, the last invitation, the last warning, the last promise, all of that, and the last prayer uh, in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 22. So all this you can look at more in detail later, uh, but those are the things that I wanted to share. I want to mention my personal Bible teaching website, gordonferguson.org. I have many, many, many articles on a wide variety of subjects that are categorized by subject. Uh, And uh, there are many uh, subjects that are covered, but I would recommend that. I have a few other uh, articles by people besides myself, but for the most part, it's my stuff. I've written all those books that Richard mentioned earlier, but I have written enough articles to make up some more books, but they're in article form and I'll leave them that way for now. There's another website called blacktaxandwhitebenefits.com. That one deals with uh, racially related areas. I started that back in 2016, I think. I've slacked off a lot uh, on that, but I'm about to pick it up again. Uh, Michael Burns is a brother who's written some marvelous stuff on uh, racial issues. He's a white man married to a black woman, This guy is a student of the Bible and a student of human beings. And uh, Mike is now here in Dallas with us. I saw him uh, at a marriage retreat Sunday with his wife, Micra, and uh, he's written a number of books on racial issues that are phenomenal. I wrote the foreword to one that deals with politics called Escaping the Beast. That should be required reading for everyone who claims to be a Christian. That's a great book. But because guys like him are writing, and I have a conviction that more Black people need to be writing and giving us their view of the world that they live in, uh, I have sort of backed off. But I was talking last night, as a matter of fact, with a brother in a church in another state from you or me. And he's one of my advisors. Since I'm a white guy, I don't pretend to know everything about. What black people have to deal with, or brown people of other uh, ethnicities have to deal with. And so Michael Burns has been my main advisor, but I've got another brother. I call him my militant advisor. I mean, this guy gets his juices flowing and has smoke coming out of his ears and says stuff about uh, the way things are and white people and uh, all that. He says, I'm the only white guy. He can say all that stuff, too. And I said, well, come on, bro. Uh, I'm I'm there with you in in most cases anyways, but come on. Everyone needs a place to vent. And so he vented on me last night, but I said, listen, bro, let's figure out some articles. And you write them, I'll edit them. I'm, I'm a better writer than you, but I will edit those. And we'll just talk about what it looks like from my perspective as a black man. And so he's going to be writing some articles. You'll figure out his name then. But anyway, I'm going to start up a series on that because he's got a lot of things that he has a lot of concerns about. And, uh, he's kind of running out of patience. He's getting old. He said, I, I, I need to see more change. And especially in the church, he's not crazy. He doesn't think things are going to radically change in a world. that's full of sin. Uh, Titus 3.3 says that before we were Christians, we were hated and being hated. That's a human dilemma. That's always going to be that way. But in the church, uh, it should not be that people don't feel loved and valued and equal with any other human being. And so anyway, we'll have some more on that later. i get worked up about that one, too. Uh, but those are two websites that you could look at. And then uh, Richard already mentioned it, but Illumination Publisher, uh, uh, ipibooks.com, has all my books on it. Revelation Reveal, you can get that and read more about the book of Revelation in depth. You can go to these other websites and find things to read. And so uh, I would invite you to do that. So those are some thoughts as I close. It's been great being with you guys. I'm even going to close on time. How many preachers do you know who can do that? You know, I've been in in church buildings where they had a clock on the back of the wall. I said, why you put that up there? Most preachers have no idea what that means when they're up there lathering up and preaching. I happen to be a guy that learned over the years since I've had a lot of different slots to fill and time limits imposed. I've learned to kind of actually watch the clock and stay uh, within shouting distance of the time allotted. And so I've done that tonight, but it's been awesome to be with you. I love you guys. Some of you I've met in the past and know personally, others I've not met, but we are blood brothers, blood of Christ brothers. And uh, so we have a natural connection. And if I was right there in the midst of you right now, you and I would feel like we've known each other all our life. Uh, There's something about the church that does that. And I'm at home anywhere I go. I've been to churches all over the world, and I feel right at home in any of them, except for the fact that a lot of them are singing in different languages. But I get a translator when it's my turn. Anyway, I will shut up and get off of here and turn it back over to whoever's in charge now. But I love you guys. Thanks for having me. It's been a privilege. Uh, I love teaching the Bible. I love the Bible. And I hope you either love it or fall in love with it because there's nothing else like it. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 says, And we need to know more and more about him in whom, Paul said, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden.
4: Well, Gordon, this has been an honor, bro, to sit at your feet, to listen to you encourage us, to listen to you teach us. You know, Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and uh, I am so grateful that you have. That first of all, that we have you among the brotherhood to break down the the book of Revelation. And uh, it's just an honor, bro, to know you and to be taught uh, by you. Uh, You know, as I was thinking, uh, you know, you, you started off with the introduction to Revelation, and then that was week one and week two. You kicked it off with introduction part two, and then chapters one through six. Uh, and then week week uh, three you took it from um, chapter seven uh, to chapter 12 and then in week uh, uh, four you took it from chapter 13 to chapter 18 I think and then you close us out uh, this evening um you know with uh, ch- from chapter 19 to chapter 22 and some of the things you mentioned today bro just, uh, some of my favorite parts of the Bible. Period. You know, I, I love the, the point you made about you know being if you're in a good marriage, you're close to heaven. <laughs> but you're in a bad marriage, you're close to hell. And then, you know that uh, that is so real, bro. I appreciate that. But uh, the parts of the of the you know of the lesson tonight, it really spoke to me. All of it did. But I love when you talk about the book of life you know, and, no, and one day we're going to all be with God forever, right? Forever. And so I really appreciate that. I do want to double back real quick and just mention your book, because even though you took five weeks to break this book, uh, to break the book of Revelations down or the book of Revelation down, it is still so much more that we can get from, from the book of Revelation. So I want to encourage. All of us, uh, if you can, go ahead and buy Gordon's book, uh, Revelation Revealed. It is uh, the keys to unlocking the mysteries of Revelation. Uh, because then you you can go at your own pace, you know, uh, you know, deepen your understanding of these classes that he taught, uh, which was so rich. And, bro, thank you again for. Your time. Let's give uh, let's give a uh, uh, Gordon one more round of applause, uh, the way we do it here in New York City. So, bro, we love you and we thank you, bro. And uh, we'll bring you back for some other things. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, we love sitting at your feet. Uh, I'm gonna close out with the word of prayer, and then we'll be done. All right. So let's let's all go to God in the word of prayer. Father, uh, we are just blown away. Uh, by your revelation, and uh, how you have revealed to us through Gordon, uh, just you have a plan, and uh, we thank you so much for having a plan, and it's inspiring, God, to know that uh, we will overcome this this dark world, and one day be with each other, but we will be in eternity with you, and it's an honor, God, to, to be able to know you, and to learn more and more about you and to fall deeper and deeper in love with you. We need you and we love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, bro. Good night.